Uh, welcome to uh, the second in the uh, edition to um, Veterans Talking. Uh, we ha- uh, have um, Tim Needham, who's a superintendent with the Civil Nuclear Constabulary. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. You, so you spent some time in the armed forces. Uh, I believe it was the Royal Engineers. Um, do you want to talk a bit more about that from uh, when you were a young, uh, young boy soldier? Uh, yeah. How you become a uh, came about uh, joining uh, the army. Yeah, certainly, Brian. Uh, well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me along, first of all. Um, so I joined the army way back in 1986 uh, as what was then called a junior leader. Um, I'm not sure that they still run uh, that kind of program anymore. But, uh, <laughs> certainly way back in the 80s, uh, a lot of people joined uh, through kind of service. The army back in October of 1986 uh, went down to Dover um, because I was only 16 years old. Um, obviously, had to to stay in training effectively for a year. Is it Dover for passing out? He said. Uh, say again, sorry, Brian. Sorry, you broke up. Uh, you did you uh, you say you were down in Dover? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did my training down in Dover. All right. Uh, There's a barrack. Barracks called Old Park Barracks. It's not there anymore. It's part housing estate and part <laughs> industrial uh, estate now. I think it was sold off um, kind of in the 90s and it's been turned into houses now. It's a shame. Um, so, yeah, so how, how, was your, how was your training? Well, training, as it always is, is, is hard, isn't it? And it's particularly hard, I think, when you're only 16. Yeah. Uh, because I think you're still probably a kid, really. You're not, you're not an adult. Uh, but obviously, in the in the forces, you know, when you join the army at, at sixteen, you you kind of treat as an adult, really. So, uh, training wasn't easy. Uh, it, it was quite hard, and because I said that, you know, at sixteen, you're not ready to go into the adult army. So, uh, the, the training effectively lasts for twelve months. So it's an awful long time to be to be in uh, a basic training type of regime. Uh, but, you know, a year passes really quickly when you're running around. Uh, so uh, it, it did pass quite quickly. And, and before you know it, you're, you're off into the uh, in, into the adult army. Yeah. So what what made you jo- um, choose the, the Royal Engineers? Um, I don't know, really. I mean, my, my, my granddad had been a sapper. He'd been a Royal Engineer. Um, but it was one of those things where... You go to the careers office, and, and at that time, I'm not sure if it's it's the same now. You you did the the tests, and the you gave me the cut off for the different kind of uh, regiments and 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 different trades that you could uh, go for depending upon your test scores, um, and you had to select three. And looking at the the stuff that they had then, this is pre-internet. You know, obviously 1986, there was no internet. Everything was in kind of brochures and pamphlets, and uh, you know, and, and adverts that you saw on the TV. Yeah. Royal Engineers looked as if it was quite a quite an exciting uh, exciting regiment and you know uh, potential to learn a trade uh, which ultimately I never did I didn't learn a trade oh did you um, no 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 um, uh, but uh, you know m- many people did learn a trade but I learned kind of basic engineering skills um, you know and 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 you know the thing about the Royal Engineers is it's a really uh, diverse. Uh, regiment. So the Royal Engineers, obviously, like every like every regiment in the in the army, uh, you're a soldier first. Yeah. Uh, so you know you you you, you do your, your basic soldiering skills, uh, but then it's a, such a diverse uh, regiment, you know, uh, which is involved basically in 
in mobility, so bridge building, uh, clearing obstacles, you know, moving forward, clearing minefields, uh, and counter mobility, which is basically doing the opposite, so destroying bridges, building obstacles, building minefields, um, and then some more of the kind of construction and infrastructure stuff, so uh, water supply, road construction, um, you know, construction of kind of camps, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and certainly when I, when I joined in the 80s, you know, um, the, the army was kind of split really between the UK and, and Germany. So you went to Germany, you tended to be armoured or mechanised. Um, and if you went to the UK, tended to kind of be more light role and deploy overseas. But this is before kind of Iraq and before Afghanistan. Uh, you know, the, the only kind of places that you went operationally at the time were Northern Ireland. Um, or you know non-operationally to, to various different postings like Belize and uh, yeah you know you know things etc. But I, I went out to Germany now and, and I spent uh, probably I think it was about four years based out in Osnabrück in Germany. Okay. I really enjoyed it there. So um, how, how was that? Um, you know, compared to the UK, Germany. Uh, fantastic. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, it was like. Uh, a, a 24/7 1830s holiday, really, because uh, <laughs> you know you li- you're living in a block, aren't you, with uh, l- lads? And it was, you know, the Royal Engineers at the time had no female uh, sappers they do now. Yeah. Uh, but at, at that time, it, you know, uh, there were no females in the Royal Engineers, so it's just lads living in a block, all aged between probably 18 and probably 25 oldest. I mean, 25 was old, uh, so all kind of late teens, very early 20s. No parents around, nobody kind of watching what you're doing, a fair bit of money in your back pocket to go out and, and do whatever you want. So it, it really was a, a good social life for anybody that, that kind of lived in uh, the British Army of the Rhine as it was back in the 80s and I'm sure before then. Um, I mean, obviously the work was, was quite hard. Exercises were long exercises. So you used to do, you know, regularly do kind of... Um, three-week exercises, four-week exercises, long long exercises, um, and then deployed to, to Canada to do training in, in Battis in Canada. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of thing, you know. So, you, you know, kind of a regular routine. You would you would exercise, you'd go out on, you know, uh, minor exercises at kind of um, squadron level, you know, and then and then regimental level, brigade level, you know, and, and right up to divisional level exercises, big divisional level exercises all through the year. And it'd just be a normal routine of going on the exercise, you know, undertaking the exercise, coming back, cleaning all your kit, uh, getting the vehicles prepped and everything prepped, ready for the next exercise. And that, that was that was kind of your life uh, in Germany, really. Yeah, I, can, I mean, I, I never actually got to Germany. Uh, I was permanently based, so I can, I can still relate to... You know, as a sort of lifestyle they lived. Um, so, you know, how long did you do, did you serve? So I served for kind of ten years in total. So that was nine years of uh, adult service plus a yeah. year of, of junior service. So I joined uh, joined in nineteen eighty six. Left in nineteen ninety six. I did for my first four years. Uh, probably just over four years, four and a half years, probably in in Germany. Uh, and then I moved to the UK, to Ripon in North Yorkshire. Um, and the, the regiment that I moved to there had a kind of a lighter role at the time. So there was a lot more um, foreign travel. Um, I mean, in Germany, we deployed to the Gulf. So in the first Gulf War, um, right. that was mainly German-based you know, units went to make up the first UK armoured division. 
because uh, it was you know an, a, an armored war essentially that wasn't it so yeah uh, we deployed we deployed there but when I got to uh, Ripon you know uh, quite regularly squadrons from from the unit at Ripon were were all over the world so uh, I think within a within a few months of getting there two or three months of getting there I, I did a tour down the Falklands uh, gave, came back from there went to Bosnia came back from there went on a kind of spearhead deployment back to Kuwait for a while back again and then back out to Bosnia so your time in Ripon went really quickly because you, you were either on tour or preparing for a tour or off on leave you know so, so again that went quite quick totally 100% air can relate to that so you know going back to um, the first Gulf War um you know how how was that? Um, I mean, what 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 was your role out there, and how, you know how did you find it? Yeah, so obviously, you know, uh, our our role as a, as a regiment was it was close support engineer regiment. So so our job was to provide you know uh, close engineering support to the Fourth Armoured Brigade, um, and and it was a bit. I mean, to be honest, it was a little bit of a, a shock. I think actually deploying to a war at that time. That sounds really silly when you join the army, doesn't it? But I think by the time we'd kind of got to the late 80s, you know, so I was in, I went to Germany, I think it was, so I joined in 86, it would be back end of 87, early 88, I got to, I think it was early 88 actually, I got to Germany. Uh, the Cold War was still on, but I think realistically everybody thought that the, the, the likelihood of the Russians attacking uh, had kind of gone down to almost nil. Yeah, and you know the likelihood of the UK deploying an armoured division. If you if you'd have asked anybody, I think you know certainly senior officers, politicians, etc. In 1988, 89, early 89, can you see a, a UK armoured division deploying to uh, Saudi Arabia and and eventually you know doing offensive operations in Iraq? Um, they'd laugh at you because that was just not something that was in in anybody's thinking at that time. So I think. When, when it kicked off, it was really, and it's 30 years this year, actually. It's, it's 30 years as of now. Really? Um, yeah, so, so Saddam Hussein attacked um, QA in, in August of, of 1990. So it's, it's 30 years as of, as of now. And, and I, I do remember that, that time, it was a really strange time in Germany because all of a sudden uh, we were deploying, first of all, one, one brigade strength. So it was 7th Armoured Brigade got, got deployed first of all. Hmm. And to get the brigade deployed took the whole of Germany really to whip around to, you know, get kit ready, paint vehicles. It was a really frantic time. And we all just kind of breathed a sigh of relief when they suddenly decided to up that commitment from one brigade to a whole division. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, four brigade who we were going to be part of were part of that. Uh, were part of that. So we ended up having to frantically run around, paint vehicles, sandy coloured, get vehicles. And a lot of the kit in Germany, you know, at that time was quite old. You know, some of the kit, you know, some of the vehicles that we were running around in in the 80s were, were built in the 60s. Um, so spares, equipment, etc. We had to get ready and get everything, you know, sorted out, ready to ready to deploy over there. So the whole thing seemed a little bit surreal at first. And I think everybody, um, you know, nobody really thought anything was going to happen with us. It, it was all very surreal. And obviously, as as time went on, uh, it was quite clear that that you know, it wasn't going to just, just end and, and it became a, uh, you know, proper um, war. And obviously uh, the result was, um, or the, the result certainly of the first Gulf War was, was a resounding victory for, for the coalition yeah. uh, based upon we had, although, although some of our kit was 1960s, some of our kit was really modern, you know, Challenger tanks, etc. 
uh, far far outstripped anything that the, the Iraqis had, and and uh, fortunately with very minimal casualties, you know, they were able to to sweep through uh, to th- to sweep through to victory. So it was it was a, a strange time. Uh, it was a it was a bit of an odd time, um, but actually bizarrely an enjoyable time in a way because you're actually doing a job that you are trained to do. Yeah. So no, no, you know, I, I totally get that uh, with deployment to Afghanistan. I totally yeah. fully understand that. Yeah. How old were you on the one hand? Twenty. Sorry. So I was twenty. I was twenty at the time. Yeah. So I was, I was single. I was single. I was twenty. I had no commitments. I had no. You know, obviously, my mum and dad. But but other than my mum and dad, you know, I didn't have children or anything like, like that to worry about. So. So and and I think when you're t- twenty, you're a bit invincible, aren't you? You think you're invincible, so yeah. So you, you <laughs> your mindset, like, like, yeah, you know, nothing's gonna happen to you. You're, you're hard as nails, aren't you? So you're gonna go out there and and, and do whatever. So uh, at the time, you know, it, it was a, a, a strangely enjoyable experience. I wouldn't say all enjoyable, but but you know, uh, something that you wanted to do and certainly wanted yeah. to be part of. I, um, I mean, I can relate that because somebody said to me once about Afghanistan. He, he turned around, and I'm not going to name names. He says it was the best and worst time of his life, and I can yeah, I can imagine that. that. Yeah, hundred percent relate to that. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not not going to say the, the first Gulf War was anywhere like Afghanistan. You know, every every conflict is different for oh, whatever reason. Hundred you know, percent, they're all different. Um, but I can relate to that feeling, and I'm sure that feeling's been felt by, you know, soldiers from from in Roman times right through. You know, it, it's that. It's that you're kind of going to go and do the job that you're trained to do. It's a little bit of elation that you're getting to do the job that you're going to do and you're going to actually do, you know, do what you're trained to do. There's yeah. the fear on the other side because it's, you know, you, you are a bit scared. You're scared of what's going to happen. You're scared of letting your mates down, all the other stuff. It's yeah. a quite a strange uh, emotion. And I, I think a lot of it doesn't hit until you come back. I think, you know, when you're there, you're so preoccupied with doing the job, not letting your mates down, not, not letting yourself down. You know, um, doing what you're supposed to do. It's only when you get back that you that you reflect on some of the things that happened that that you think, you know, that's kind of, uh, you know, it, it's, it's it's not something that that it, it's out. It's it's so abnormal that you know it's it's hard to rationalise it in your head if, if you're not. No, I, mean. I I totally 100% understand, and I think uh, a lot of the listener, the listeners who are ex-forces or are forces. We'll totally uh, understand where you're coming from. But then uh, you said you deployed to Bosnia. Uh, when was that and how yeah. old were you? Uh, so that was 93 the first time. So uh, how old would I be then? 23? Yeah. So, uh, I think it was 93. Or was it 94? I'm losing track. <laughs> yeah, either 93. No, I think, was, I think it was October 93, but could be October 94. Yeah. Uh, I'd have to check. Uh, but but we were the... So, so it was... Operation Grapple Three. So we were, the, we were the third contingent of of British troops uh, to be deployed into Bosnia, and and the war in Bosnia was still very much, uh, you know, on. Uh, and again, that was a really odd and very strange and bizarre uh, time. Uh, I was quite fortunate because at the time I, I I deployed over there driving. I was kind of the OC's driver at the time, which I thought was actually going to be a rubbish job. It turned out to be one of the better jobs because the OC went everywhere. Yeah. So you, you went to you know you went all over all over Bosnia basically wherever he went you went you know and of course the Royal Engineers have deployed wherever there are is a requirement so the whole theatre 
you know, I got to places where quite a lot of people didn't manage to get to, which was, you know, which was quite good. Um, Bosnia, again, was a really strange experience, I suppose, because uh, at the time, at 23, knew nothing about Bosnia, nothing about Yugoslavia, absolutely nothing whatsoever. Uh, subsequently, I've read quite a bit, only because I didn't understand it, and, you know, it, it's... I'm not going to say I understand it now, but it, you know, it's really difficult uh, to get your head around yeah. what happened in in Yugoslavia. So, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, yeah, I'm I'm in the same uh, same as you. I deployed twice um, in the early 2000s, and it's only recently I've sort of like um, listened to a podcast called Conflicted, um, and they touch bases that the the whole scenario there and stuff that I didn't really uh, know about. So yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from with that. It's um, there's a lot more went on that I, I think the the public actually you know general knowledge of it is actually you know was oh, given them. Gone. Yeah, I, it's it's a weird thing because nobody really speaks about Bosnia now. It's kind of it's gone. And what was really weird for me is Bosnia is a European uh, country. Yeah, yeah. You know, it sits in Europe. It's not you know it's not very far from the UK really. No. A three hour flight. Not I'm not even sure if it's a three hour flight. It's probably not three even three hour, three hour flight. But uh, um. You know, parts of it are still. So, so you go to some of the villages, and, and they are kind of like peasant villages, but 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 the cities and the towns are very very, um, you know, modern European cities and towns, and they were absolutely destroyed and and, and killing each other in European cities. It was just a really weird, a really weird place to be. Yeah, uh, and obviously really deep, deep hatreds uh, that go back hundreds and hundreds of years that that you know as an outsider as somebody from the uk you just you don't understand them you, you just don't understand how they get there but again you know another strange experience because on the one hand enjoyable because again you're doing your job again you know there's that element of a little bit of danger there's an element of uh you know of, of actually operating uh so you it's enjoyable uh but on the other side uh, you know, when you reflect back, it's a, it's a, it's a strange experience. Yeah, to- certainly when I went back. To- yeah, cool. I to- I totally understand where you come from, and I can totally relate to that. And like I said before, I think a, a lot of the listeners will probably relate quite quite uh, well. But but we'll take this will you know we'll take you up to you know uh, the, the time that you were leaving the armed forces. What what was your reasoning? Um, well, I never really joined. For a, a full career, yeah. and I think I kind of get, I kind of guessed after nine years and only reaching Landsjack, I wasn't going to make it to general. <laughs> uh, I think kind of chief of general staff was probably out of me, out of my reach by then. So um, I decided that you know it was time to go. I, as I said, I only, I, I'd only ever really joined for three years. It was, it was going to be a short thing, and then, and then off, and I, I ended up staying for, for, for nine years. Um, I did everything I wanted to do. So I did the things that I wanted to do. I, you know, I wanted to travel and I traveled. I wanted to have a bit of operational experience. I got that, you know, I got all the things that I wanted out of the army probably at that stage. Um, and at that time, I think kind of mid nineties, uh, certainly for the Royal Engineers, there was an awful lot of engineering commitment in Bosnia. And it was looking at the time, like it was going to be kind of six months on six months off Bosnia. Yeah. And I went back for a second tour. And your second tour is never as good as your first tour. No, definitely you know, not. Because you, 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 you've done it, you've seen it, and you've just seen it all again. So there was that kind of, uh, you were faced with that potentially over the next 
you know, unfolding over the next however many years. Um, so I decided to get out. So I, I, I signed off with no uh, real idea of what I was going to do. Uh, I, I kind of, you know, um, didn't really have a, have a clue, if I'm being perfectly honest, what I was going to do. I had a few irons in the fire or a few things that I thought about doing at the time. If I remember, cable and satellite TV was really kind of taking off big and, and quite a few people had gone into that. And I'm pretty certain I went to put my name down for a resettlement course uh, in cable and satellite TV installation, but never in the end did it. Quite glad I didn't do it really because I don't like heights. So I don't know what to do. I don't know if I do bung- bungalows probably. I could, I could only fit sky to bungalows. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so, so all, all that was kind of panning out. And, and, um, you know, through the army resettlements, actually, even even back then, you know, the army resettlement was pretty good. I must I must say, what it, it wasn't bad. Um, they had a, a resettlement centre, you know, a, a very small one on camp in the education centre. You know, there's kind of a little room. Uh, but then I think it was at York or Catterick, Catterick or York, because where where I was in in Ripon kind of spanned York and Catterick garrisons. It was a proper resettlement centre that you went, and it was it was a bit like a, a careers library. Yeah. Uh, type of thing and again it was pre it was pre-internet so there's you know you couldn't job search uh you, you couldn't kind of uh, go online and job search uh so everything was in pamphlets and books and brochures and i was pulling out uh some brochures i was just looking at looking at stuff i was looking at the prison service you know i mean uh, an obvious choice quite often for people leaving the forces is a uniformed organization because they offer similar uh, structure don't they so Prison service, fire service, police, uh, ambulance, and, and various other things. So I was looking through a couple of things. I pulled out um, a pamphlet, and I remember it as clear as day. And it was about, I think it was BTP, British Transport Police. Uh, but on the f- front cover of it, there was a post-it note, and it said UK AEA Constabulary and a phone number. Never heard of them. So I rang the BTP recruitment line to be told we're not recruiting other than in London. Uh, the only time at that stage, at that time, they, they were recruiting was, was in London and you'd have to move to London and, and uh, whatever. And I didn't really fancy moving down to London. Uh, most of the forces that I'd kind of looked at, you know, I'd looked at a couple of forces, weren't recruiting at that time. And, you know, when I got out mid-90s, it was one of those periods that you go through where forces weren't recruiting. So I just thought, I'll ring this number, UK AEA Constabulary. Never heard of them. Didn't have a clue what they did. Not, not, not a clue, but in, intrigued me in a way that I'd never heard of them. Yeah. So I rang the number, uh, spoke to somebody uh, at the UK AEA Constabulary headquarters, which was in, or still is, in, in, in Cullum, in, um, in, in Oxfordshire. Um, and it all went from there, really. It just so happened that they were recruiting. Uh, they hadn't recruited for a few years. Uh, please send us a letter, which I did. They sent an application back, and, and, and that's that's how it started. And the UK AEA Constabulary, I found out, I had to ask what it meant, uh, uh, stood for the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority Constabulary. So that's when I joined back in 1996, having no idea of of, uh, of what it, you know, what I was getting into, if you like. Um, they sent me out some some recruitment literature and, and brochures, which uh, which I read, and, and that put a little bit of um, more, you know, paint, painted the picture a little bit more uh, for me. Um, but if, you know, uh, at that time, certainly now, you know, even now, unless you live close to a nuclear establishment, you, you wouldn't really know about our force. 
Yeah, no, I mean, no I, I only found out because uh, somebody I've done basic training with, um, he's actually serving, and I believe he serves alongside you. I'm not going to say his name. Um, but, yeah, I hadn't heard of him. And, uh, you know, it, it was qu- I was quite intrigued uh, to actually what they did. But to, for the listeners who haven't heard of, which is now the, the Civil Nuclear Constabulary, do you want to, you know, shed some light on, you know, the training and uh, what they, you know, what they're involved in and actually how important they are to the uh, to the country and, you know, what they actually do? Yeah, certainly. Um, so the UK AEA Constabulary, as you said, became the Civil Nuclear Constabulary, and that was in 2005. Um, so the Civil Nuclear Constabulary are the uh, police force uh, that protect the UK's um, nuclear facilities, uh, civil nuclear facilities and nuclear material uh, in the UK. Uh, we also transport nuclear material, so we protect nuclear material that's been transported around the UK, uh, certain categories of it anyway. Uh, and we also uh, protect nuclear material that's been uh, transported internationally. Uh, so we do work internationally as well as in the UK. So our, our core function, our primary role uh, is the protection of nuclear facilities uh, and nuclear material in the UK so that's civil nuclear material not 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 military nuclear material that's, yeah. that's protected by the Ministry of Defence Police we've got I mean if any of your listeners are aware of the Ministry of Defence Police we're not too dissimilar to the to the MDP in some respects we are different you know we're a totally different force totally different entity and, and our focus is slightly different uh, we're, we're purely focused on on protecting the nuclear material uh, but we are a police force. Go on, sorry. Yeah, I was going to. Um, I was just going to ask you to touch light on the training um, compared to uh, yep. the the army, and uh, you know h- how you found it in your time there. Yeah. So, so we are a, we are we are a police force. So you know, um, product. You know, we are. So we are trained as police officers. So the the big difference, I think, in the training uh, is that you know clearly you, you're training as a police officer and not as a soldier, uh, which involves. A, 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 you know, quite a bit more um, academic uh, study, uh, you know, in, in the kind of training environment uh, in terms of the legislation that's required to carry out your job. Now, what we have done as a force is because of our core role, you know, we, we will train slightly different legislation to, to some other forces because we need uh, our officers to be more aware of the Terrorism Act, more aware of the Firearms Act, etc., uh, than, say, a Bobby... Uh, you know, on the beat in a normal town. And we don't need to be as aware of, say, the Licensing Act and, and, and things like that, because that's not as relevant to us, although we might touch on some of that, that legislation. So I found the training, um, you know, it was, it was different in a lot of respects. But, but similar, you know, it, it, the, the police are a uniformed organisation, they're a disciplined organisation. They have a rank structure. Uh, it's not hugely dissimilar. The rank badges look the same so a sergeant's rank badge is the same as an army sergeant's rank badge you know um etc so so things don't are, are hugely different uh, from uh from military to policing now when i went through training 20 what are we on now 24 years ago things were very different you know the cnc or uk aec as it was uh, wore white shirts itchy blue trousers ties and big tall hats with a badge on uh, although they were they were an armed police force in some respects, they had a lot of unarmed officers as well deployed. And the and the CNC uh, has changed, you know. So certainly over the last ten years, we've become predominantly 
uh, an armed police force. Um, so there's a lot more focus on the firearms training. I think when I went through uh, firearms training, uh, the, you know, the, the national police course for for an AFO, an authorised firearms officer, was a two, three weeks, something like that. Uh, it's now, um, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, it's at least uh, 12 weeks. It might even be 13 weeks. I think you're right with the, the 12 weeks. Uh, from what I, I think it's about 12 yeah. weeks, yes. Some pedant in the training world will, will ring me up and say, "No, it's thirteen <laughs> weeks." Or, but it's it's at least it's at least twelve weeks. That's a lot of training. That's that's twelve weeks just dedicated to firearms tactics, firearms use, uh, you know, range work, etc. And the range of tactics that the police do and that CNC, you know, we do uh, now. Have, uh, you know, the, the the number of tactics have gone up and up and up as years have gone up to as the years have gone by. To uh, to deal with the, the threats, so they're quite so a, a lot of the sorry. I was going to say this, so they're they're quite a highly skilled, um, you know, a trained unit uh, as a, as yeah. it comes to firearms. Yeah, so so our our uh, all of our uh, authorized firearms officers uh, have a national role profile. So the so the training that we do aligns to national, um, you know, governed training. So so all, all firearms training in the police is governed centrally by the College of Policing. Uh, there's a national firearms training curriculum. Uh, there's a role profile for, for an authorised firearms officer. And our, our, our officers are trained as what's known as authorised firearms officer uh, counterterrorism, AFOCT. Right. Um, so their skills are, you know, in, in that, that area, which involves, you know, open area searching, cover and movement, uh, you know, a, a variety of tactics. Um, a lot of them, are not dissimilar to military-style tactics. So, you know, you, you wouldn't see a huge amount of difference. There's only one way to cover and move. You know, you are covering and you're moving. Uh, so there is only one way that, that you can do it, really. So, so for, for instance, the skill of cover and moving, you wouldn't see any difference between military tactics, really, and, and, and um, police tactics. The only difference being um, the police, the whole police ethos is around using the absolute minimum amount of force you know, so so the, the minimum amount of force required to to lawfully um, you know undertake your objective. So to so so to stop a terrorist, you use the minimum amount of force. Obviously, military tactics in a war, you're using the maximum amount of force to to destroy the enemy. That's what you that's what you're trying to do. Uh, so you know, police tactics differ in that respect. In that the the, the physical movements on the ground look the same, but but. You know, we're not going to be firing mortars at them. We're not going to be firing rocket launchers at them. You know, um, it's, it's all around using the minimum amount of force necessary to do the job. So, so um, touching on touching on the you know on, on your career, um, let's let's talk about the first you know uh, you know f- few years and you know where where, where it's taken to you and uh, then on to you know where you are now. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, I joined, uh, went straight to Sellafield. Uh, so I went to Sellafield. Sellafield's our biggest uh, site. Uh, it's uh, the biggest nuclear site in the UK. Um, if not Europe, it's certainly one of the biggest. Um, it has the UK's uh, central repository of plutonium and various other kind of nasty materials on there. Uh, and there's been a, a presence from our force there since Sellafield was built. Um so I went there and I was a, an authorized firearms officer. Uh, you did your first when I, you know, when you, you didn't carry a firearm when you're in your probation, you're an unarmed officer and then went on firearms after that. 
Uh, so I went as a, a kind of patrol officer, uh, became an, an authorised firearms officer, uh, patrolled on, on shift, uh, carried out all the kind of normal routine patrol uh, duties that, that, that we did at the time. At that time, most, well, all of our patrol activity almost was, was on the site. We were kind of patrolled on the site and only uh, a limited number of people actually patrolled off the, off the site at that time. The threat was very different in 1996 to where it is now. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that obviously has changed over time. So that, that's what I did for the first couple of years. Um, I took the promotion exam and at that time we did an exam uh, for promotion to sergeant and a promotion to inspector. And you could take that as soon as you came out of your probation. So that's what I did. Uh, I decided after nine years in the army, getting to the dizzy ranks of, of uh, one's corporal, I'd actually give it a bash <laughs> this time around and, and see, if I could, see if I could change things. So uh, I got promoted to uh, sergeant. And uh, I'm just trying to think when that was. Probably within about three years, only about three and a half years, I think it was. Not so quite fast. Uh, yeah, so quite fast. So I got promoted to sergeant and, and I stayed at Sellafield but moved shifts. Sellafield is big enough that, you, you know, you can move shift and see people you've never met before. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I moved shifts. I became a shift sergeant, so supervising people that were uh, supervising AFOs. Uh, I was still an authorised firearms officer myself um, and I did that. And then an opportunity came up um, on special branch. So uh, working within kind of intelligence uh, and I, uh, I took that opportunity, um, did quite a few courses, some of them in London, some in, in Yorkshire, and I worked on uh, intelligence for, uh, well, almost 10 years, actually, as a, as a sergeant. So uh, with special um, branch within the CNC, how, how does that uh, compare to, you know, if, you know, anybody, who, you know, may watch, I don't know, you know, like the bill or, you know, or, you know, know something about the police. How does it compare to the special yeah. brands within, say, you know, the Met Police? So uh, if you watch the telly, it compares nothing, does it? Nothing ever compares to, to the telly. <laughs> uh, but but um, in, in real life, uh, it, it's a comparable job. It's all around, um, you know, gathering and disseminating intelligence. That's what it's all around. It's all around producing intelligence products that, that assist the front line. So... I won't go into the kind of methods and things that, that are used, but but uh, I worked, you know, for, for kind of 10 years and in, in including uh, working on secondment with the national units as well, mm. um, intelligence gathering. So, so so I did that for, for quite a while and I was, I was quite content doing that. And, and, you know, it was quite, quite um, it was a, a really good job and I, you know, I did, did all, all sorts of things. And then I decided, I think, I think it was about year nine, I decided it was time to move on. So I, I took the inspector's exam and, and managed somehow to pass it um, and ended up as an inspector. Uh, and I was an inspector down at our headquarters. I, I moved to headquarters for a couple of years, and that's down in uh, Abingdon, and I worked directly for the chief constable. Uh, I was the chief constable's principal staff officer, otherwise known as bagman, t-boy, uh, and everything else that you do, uh, but that was a really good job. Again, I saw a totally different side to uh, the way that the CNC works. You know, I saw kind of how corporate headquarters works. Um, after that, as an inspector, I moved to Anglesey for a while, um, and I was the operational unit commander at a site called Wilver, which is no longer in operation, but that was a really nice site. I was only there for a, for a short period, but it was a really good uh, job. I really enjoyed that. Um, uh, the, the difficulty being, Anglesey is pretty much 
well, it is. It's Welsh first language, and I didn't speak a word of Welsh when I went. I managed <laughs> to pick up a few words of Welsh, which was always interesting. But uh, really enjoyed it. Really nice, really nice place, and really nice people actually. So uh, enjoyed that. Um, what did I do after that? So after that, I was promoted to chief inspector. And I was a divisional chief inspector, and I was responsible for four of our power stations in the north in Scotland. So that was Hunterston uh, and Torness in Scotland, and Hartlepool and Heesham in the north of England. So Torness, I was responsible really. Is that is about is that in Scotland? So Torness is uh, south of Edinburgh. Um, it's kind of north of Berwick, south of Edinburgh. Okay. Off, just off the A1. If you're driving up the A1 towards Edinburgh and you look to your right, you see a nuclear power station. That's that's Torness. Uh, so it's right on the coast. It's on the east coast. Uh, we've obviously got Hartlepool in Hartlepool. Yeah. Um, uh, Heesham is near Morecambe. Uh, and Hunterston is in Scotland as well. It's it's just south of... North of our drop kind of west of Glasgow on the west coast. So, so I had kind of responsibility really for performance across those four um, four uh, uh, power stations. And I did that for a few years before getting promoted to superintendent. I think I was promoted to superintendent in uh, 2015, well, in 2020. Yeah. So, been so in, in that years. space itself, you? Yeah. Well, uh, it has been for the last okay. uh, nine months. Uh, the first four years of that was uh, I, I was in responsible right. for our escort group. So as I said at the, as I said at the start, we are um, one of our roles is to escort nuclear material around the UK um, and to uh, you know uh, and internationally. Uh, and I was really fortunate to take over the escort team at a time when it yeah. was at its busiest. So uh, we were doing a, a project, a, a UK kind of government-led uh, project to move some nuclear material, move a, a significant quantity of nuclear material from Doonray in the north of Scotland down to Sellafield. So uh, was that by... Uh, and that, that required... Sorry, go ahead. That was by, that was by sea, um, but also uh, it was by road, sea and rail. So it used three different modes of transport. Uh, and each operation, you know, from start to finish actually took 10 days and, and uh, there were 20, ooh, I can't remember, 21, I think it is, 21, 22 uh, operations, all of them full armed deployment. So quite a significant number of operations in a fairly short period of time. Uh, but at the same time, we had three international operations running as well. Um, so, yeah, it was a really busy time. Uh, but really good. So it's, really. I mean, the CNC, from what you said, and you know, has a, a major importance within the security of, um, you know, the, the United Kingdom um, within the the nuclear um, sort of industry. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think you know, the the, the CNC is critical for for national security. Um, you know, we protect nuclear material that. Uh, there would be a, a you know a significant consequence if if terrorists or, or or others were to either get hold of that nuclear material or sabotage a plant you know and, and cause a release. So that's what our job is. That's that's our primary job. It's to protect that nuclear material. Um, and it doesn't really matter where you sit, you know, in terms of uh, your thoughts on nuclear power or on nuclear material. You know, the fact is that you know the UK has 
uh, you know, large quantities of nuclear material that need to be protected. Um, so we are the professional force that are there to protect that material on behalf of the public. That's what we do. We work on behalf of the public. We're not as, um, you know, we're, we're not, we're not in the limelight like, like others. And we're, you know, we're not, our job is one of those jobs where unless, as I said earlier, unless you kind of live close to a, a nuclear site, you're not going to see us very frequently. We, we do quite a lot of advertising and, and things like this, you know, getting our name out there, but we don't court the publicity and, and there's no need for us to do so. Uh, we just quietly get on with our job. Um, yeah. Protecting so, uh, yeah. So that, that's, um, that's, you know, you've had a quite interesting career Um obviously no regrets of what you've done. So it's, uh, no, no regrets. Yeah. No, no regrets at all. And I think you know, if anyone's listening to this, if you've got kind of anyone listening to this who is in the military and thinking of leaving, or has recently left, or even left quite you know a number of years ago, um, you can actually, you know, the military sets you up. I think in a, in an awful lot of ways, uh, positive ways. And I think there's a there's quite a lot of negativity in 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 the media i think around um people leaving the the military broken now i know that you know ptsd i'm not saying ptsd is an issue mm. ptsd is a big issue um you know mental illness is a big issue but actually a lot of people do leave the military and successfully transition into civilian careers you know um and if if you if you read some of the papers or if you see some portrayals on on tv shows of of squaddies you know you'd think that everybody that leaves the military is broken and is never going to do anything in the life, you know. And I think the military does set you up for uh, a life outside. It, you know, it gives you certain quali- qualifications. That's on the one hand, but actually, it gives you qualities that are really useful to other employers. So, you know, things like punctuality. You know, you, you know, everybody I know in the military arrives five minutes before. You know, it's just dra- it's just drained in, drained in. Yeah. you arrive five minutes before. You tend not to whinge, you know, you get on with your job, you don't whine. You might whine after the job and you'll whine to each other, but you get on with the job. It doesn't really matter what the job is. You understand that there's a bigger mm. bigger mission out there sometimes and that the bit that you're doing might not be important, but you just crack on with it, you know. And uh, I think those qualities do come through. Um, teamwork, you know, uh, getting on with people, being able to communicate with people, all those things come through. And certainly... I don't think I'd be where I am now. I'm pretty certain I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't been in the military. I think some of the th- some of the things I learned when I was 16, going right back to the very beginning, um, probably didn't come out to me, come out for me for a number of years. So some people left, you know, junior training at 16 and 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 got it and flicked in the army. They were flyers. They ended up getting promoted really quickly and ended up getting you know ending up the careers, getting commissioned and all the rest of it. It clicked really quick. I think it took a while for me to some of the lessons that I learned when I was 16 to click in my brain properly. Uh, but I, I certainly still use some of those lessons now. You know, some of the things that I learned when I was 16, I, I still learn now. I still use now. So, so I think the military does set you up in a good way for a, a career. No, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I, I can totally relate. I think I'm, I think I'm quite like you. Um, no, when I first joined, I was, uh, you know, a bit immature and it's uh, took me, you know, uh, it took me a while to sort of like, uh, you know, sort of kick in them, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, sort of like, you know, instincts. Is that the way, best word to say for military instincts? Yeah, it is. It's, yeah, it, I think it's, I think, like you say, I think the military plants, um, 
it, it molds you, it models you in a certain way, you know, and there's certain things that it plants in you. And to some people that comes out quite quickly in the military career and they, and they you know, they get it and they, they're picked up yeah. quite quickly by the military and, you know, they end up W1s and end up, end up, you know, commissioned to captain, major, you know, even lieutenant colonel, whatever, you know, that, that that's one way it, it, it works. Uh, but I do think in other people, um, it, it does work later in life. You kind of pick things up. I, I you know, you, you, you yourself and everybody that's listening who's military will, and has got out will know how ir- irritating it is when you're in a civilian meeting and people are dr- dripping through the door five minutes later. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, they haven't got a notebook or whatever it is. Because for us, you know, you, you've got a notebook, you've got a pen, you've got your kit, you know where you're going, you know what you're doing, you know what time you've got to be there. Yeah, totally there understand that. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and that, just that is, is worth a fortune, I think, in an employer because, you know, getting an employee that turns up and, He's ready to go. Is it? I think that's something that can't be taught, uh, and it's definitely you know something, you know, it is drilled into you in the military. But yeah. it's, it's something that you know it's it's worth its weight in gold uh, having that. But uh, yeah. but uh, I think I think you you understand people as well, don't you? Because I, I um, so so I you know I'm responsible for a few hundred people. Um, you know I've got hundreds of people under us. Um, and you understand people you understand how people tick sometimes you understand that people are having bad days you know because you've seen it you've kind of been there you've done it you've been there yourself so you 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 got that tolerance with some of it um you know you can communicate with people oh it's just i think just sets Set you up for life but uh but yeah uh tim look it's been fantastic talking to you um and i hope it's given that some of the listeners an insight to your uh experiences and also the uh, civil nuclear constabulary um because i'm sure there'll be people out there who haven't heard them but uh like all people who i invite on the show um there's a song I uh, asked them to sort of uh, the one played at the end, and you've already got one uh, planned, haven't you? Um, and I've... yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it sounds it sounds a bit naff now, but yeah, it's not naff at all. It's our regimental march. So uh, wings. So uh, march. thanks yeah. very much, Tim, and uh, 